Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, here there be monsters, lake monsters from Port Henry, New York, and Kelowna, British Columbia. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Everyone and welcome to the sixth episode of the sixth season of Small Town Secrets. And uh, full disclosure, uh, tonight really is just an episode for me. I know that both of these topics, um, we're going to talk about Port Henry, New York, which is kind of the quote-unquote home of Champ, the lake monster from Lake Champlain. And then we're going to talk about Kelowna and Ogopogo, and Lake Okanagan, and all of that. I know both of those topics are two very well-known topics on lake monsters, but the reason I wanted to do them for the show, like I just said, really is just for me, because I've never really had a chance to sit down and, like, look into, like, the lore and the history and the sightings and uh, the story of these two places. And this gave me an excuse to just sit down and dig into it a little bit. And so here we are with this episode. But you know what? Maybe there are people out there that also have never sat down and really dug into these two stories, these two lake monsters. And so uh, join me on this journey together. Not a whole lot to say tonight. Uh, Nothing weird. Woke up. Normal time. Everything is on track. Everything is great. Uh, Just ready 
to get on with the show. So let's uh, get on with it. First off, we're going to talk about Port Henry in New York. Hi there. My name is Kevin, and I host the Can't Make This Up History podcast. Before starting the Can't Make This Up History podcast, I taught college history for five years, during which I learned the best history is told through amazing, unbelievable stories that actually happened. For example, did you know that the Nazis believed they could use witchcraft and astrology to shape government policy? Or that in the 1800s, New York City shipped its prisoners, poor and insane, to a miserable island in the East River, where convicts served as orderlies for the mentally ill? Did you know that a 1920s con artist masquerading as a Native American chief was able to bilk European aristocrats out of millions and attracted beetle-sized crowds wherever he went? Or that the Franklin Expedition, lost to the Canadian Arctic in one of history's greatest unsolved mysteries for over 150 years, was finally discovered in 2014 by following Inuit oral history? The Can't Make This Up History podcast is dedicated to telling these stories and more through interviews with a wide array of guests, from academic historians to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. New episodes of the Can't Make This Up History podcast are available every other Tuesday on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Before we get into tonight's topics, I want to take a minute and let you know that there is so much more small town secrets to enjoy. Check out the Patreon. There are one, two, and three dollar tiers of support with stuff like a shout out on the main show, exclusive buttons and stickers, MP3s to the music I create, also an ad slash promo free version of the main show, as well as STS Backroads, the Patreon only podcast that comes out in the off weeks, which means you'll get content every week all in your own RSS feed. There is all of this and more. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash stscast or stscast.com and click on the support tab. And now, on with tonight's episode. There are many small towns and cities that border the massive body of water that is Lake Champlain. However, it's the small hamlet of Port Henry that boasts being the home of Champ, the lake's mysterious sea creature. The lake itself is the sixth largest lake in the United States, at 107 miles long and 14 miles wide. It has a depth of 400 feet at its deepest part and has about an average depth of 60 feet across the board. The lake starts in New York, runs all the way through Vermont, and ends up in Quebec up in Canada. Lake Champlain is a remnant of what was once called the Champlain Sea, a body of water which once covered most of the region. The lake is named after French explorer Samuel de Champlain. Lake Champlain has had sightings of unknown creatures below its waters for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Petroglyphs of many local Native American tribes depict what appears to be either a long-necked plesiosaur or more of the traditional sea serpent type of creature. There have been drawings and even a, a one picture from 1866 of ancient Abenaki petroglyphs that show what appear to be a creature with a long neck and fins. These petroglyphs were lost to time until they were rediscovered by archaeologist Annette Spalding in 2015. Uh, what basically happened was, uh, you know, they were in a cave. These ones were found. Uh, they And I don't think they were found, like, at the lake. They were actually found at, like, 60 or 80 miles south of the lake, but it's very much in the same region. There have been rocks on the lake that do have kind of petroglyph rock art on them. But the ones that show the plesiosaur type creature, like I said, they were discovered a little bit south uh, near a river. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the river had a dam built on it. And eventually that like flooded these caves and you couldn't just get to the petroglyphs anymore. 
And uh, they finally found them, you know, buried under like a couple of feet of silt and just all sorts of debris. But there have, you know, we had for a very long time, we had one photograph from 1866 and then a, a drawing, a lithograph of it. But they did eventually refine them and they are very interesting to look at. It just goes to show you how long this creature uh, has been seen, has been talked about. In 1809, a newspaper out of New York called The Public Advertiser put out the first published account of a large creature. And uh, really, it literally is just like, I'm going to paraphrase it. It is just like Lake Champlain. Uh, there's a monster in the lake of Lake Champlain. Like, it is a sentence. <laughs> that was the first kind of published uh, acknowledgement of it. But this was followed in 1819 with a story from the Plattsburgh Republican publication. And Plattsburgh is another town uh, that borders that borders Lake Champlain. In this story, the creature was seen by many witnesses near Fort Henry. The next notable published sighting was in 1873. The Whitehall Times reported the story of a group of railway workers who sighted a creature with a long neck and sharp teeth. The men were working in the nearby town of Dresden and watched the animal swim by the shore for a quarter of a mile or so before disappearing. A month later, as the story goes, a steamboat was hit by the animal, almost capsizing the boat. It was after these stories that interest started to grow. Many were panicked, but some were intrigued. P.T. Barnum even offered $50,000 for the hide of the creature that had hit the boat. And uh, no one ever found such hide, and no one ever collected $50,000. In 1915, the creature was spotted by a barrage of witnesses in Bawaga Bay. The creature seemed to be stuck in the shallows of the bay, and uh, Bawaga Bay is just below Port Henry, and it's where a lot of sightings occurred, especially in the 70s and 80s. Uh, if you uh, visit Port Henry, there is a sign that there's literally just like champ sightings, and it's just name and date after name and date of people who have seen and reported seeing champ over the years. Sightings of Champ would come and go since that uh, 1915 sighting. However, it wouldn't be until 1977 that we would get our first piece of what many consider to be actual evidence of the creature. One summer day in 1977, Sandra Massey, her husband, and their children pulled off the road and parked near the shore of Lake Champlain. They wanted to get out and stretched their feet for a little bit. While the kids played in the water, Sandra looked out upon the massive lake. Her husband went back to the car in order to retrieve the family camera. And while he did, Sandra noticed something break the water's surface. It appeared to be a creature with a long neck. Her husband also saw this creature. He yelled at the kids to get out of the water and it was then that Sandra took the camera and snapped the now-famous picture. The creature then disappeared back under the water. And since then, this photo has been the best documented piece of evidence of the existence of Champ. Sadly, Sandra would pass away in April of 2018. And uh, once again, depending on what you're listening to this to, you might get the artwork for this episode. And it is a picture of the Massey photo. I'll make sure to put it in the show notes as well. It is very similar to the Sturgeon or the Surgeon photo or whatever it is, the great Loch Ness photo that we have since found out is uh, probably a hoax. And I'm not saying that this is a hoax. I'm just saying it's almost the same type of picture of the hump of this thing and then a long neck coming out and then craning and looking away from the camera. So you don't see a face or anything. And of course, it's been highly debated. Some people just say that it is nothing more than a piece of driftwood, a you know, a log that is a very weird shape to it, or something to that effect. But then I think a lot of people that just write it off as being a piece of driftwood never take into the account the story. Like, you know, she saw it break the water. She saw it, 
you know, stay there for a little bit. And then they saw it go back underneath the water. And then, like, it never bobbed back up like a piece of floating driftwood you would think would do. So, I don't know. But they've looked at the photo. It is not doctored in any way. It is not obviously a Photoshop. This is 1977. It's not like... It is a real picture of something. And uh, it's in color. And it's a pretty good one. So I'll make sure to put it in, in the show notes. But that is the first kind of modern day sighting. You get a great picture. And it just sparks, I think, a lot more people to kind of come forward with it. And I just want to get into a couple of my favorite ones. Both for almost the same reason. I'll get to it in a little bit. So, like, one of my favorite sightings occurred in 1980. Port Henry resident Frank Horton and his friend Tim Arnold were driving down the road by Bulwaga Bay when they saw a massive dark shape on the beach below the road. They watched the creature for a little while as it lay in the sand. And then, as it started to make its way back to the water, the two quickly drove down to the beach. But whatever was there had gone, it had gone into the water, it had left like a wake and all that. They saw that, and they also found a depression left in the sand uh, by this, this creature. And the reason I like this sighting so much is because that... This is one of the rare ones where they see it on land. Two guys see it on the beach. They don't see it in the water. They, they see it on the, on the beach. It's moving. It's in the sand. And they watch it move back into the water. And this wasn't the only time that Champ was seen out of the water. This wasn't the only Champ sighting to be seen out of the water. Charlie Ayer who lives and runs a boathouse, also has a story to tell. One night, while he was out, his mother and his sister were awoken by the dog barking at something outside. They looked outside, and under the dim light of a nearby street lamp, they saw a massive animal lying in their boat ramp. So it wasn't out of the water, it was on the boat ramp. So still a little wet, but pretty much out of the water. Charlie's mom called him, and had him come back home. And when he got there, he caught sight of the creature retreating from the boat ramp back into the lake. He always assumed his headlights had scared it off. And he did kind of give a description, and it was very plesiosaur-like. Uh, a lot of this information I want to talk about real quick is I got it from the Small Towns Monsters doc on the Trail of Champ, which you can rent on iTunes, you can rent it on Hulu. It's out there. Uh, it is a great watch. He's on there. He talks about it. You know, he's got a little, like, plesiosaur toy. He's like, this is it. This is what I saw. And they just have a lot of great uh, information, a lot of great stories to tell in that documentary. I'll link it uh, so that you guys can uh, find it if you need to. I mean, that's just, like, a couple, a few of the more kind of interesting, popular sightings of Champ. But, of course... There are many ideas, many theories as to what Champ may be. And uh, you've probably heard all of these before. You're going to hear them all again. And they almost per they almost pertain to every lake monster story uh, that we hear about. Such as a large sturgeon. Uh, there are plenty of fish in Lake Champlain. Uh, you know, a lot of fish that have been there for a hundred million years unchanged. The sturgeon is one of them. Is it some sort of large eel? Which I know a lot of people poo-poo, but like, I'd be okay with that. Especially if it was like a really, really big eel. Another one that I like is uh, perhaps an unknown and undiscovered species of long-necked turtle. Of course, is it a plesiosaur from a family that never died out, somehow had gotten trapped in the lake and survived, or finds ways in and out of the lake through other, like, waterways or maybe an underground cave, some of that. Or, of course, is it just misidentified animals and tree branches? But is it even possible for such a large animal to live in the area? There is some evidence to support this. In 1849, the skeleton of a beluga whale was discovered by, once again, railway workers. The 12-foot skeleton of the whale now resides in the Perkins Museum and is known 
as the Charlotte Whale, so named because it was found in Charlotte, Vermont, which also borders the lake on the Vermont side. Of course, this skeleton is most likely left over from when Lake Champlain was the Champlain Sea, but still it begs the question, could something that large still be lurking around? Like I said, is it something that we just, some sort of amphibian, some sort of reptile that we just don't see a whole lot of, and it's, you know, maybe over the years, it has gotten trapped in this body of water that used to be a sea, and now it's just there, and it just resides there, and we're not sure what it is yet. It certainly is a possibility, of course. We find species all the time. Uh, the coelacanth, you know, this giant fish that we were like, it's extinct, it's extinct, until I think some, I want to say Japanese fishermen found one a while ago. Uh, not extinct, just not a whole lot of them around, and things like that. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, what I really dig about some of these is that, you know, it might be a plesiosaur or some sort of thing like that, but it, it is probably some sort of reptile or amphibian, because you have to understand, like, this is in, like, upstate New York, this is in Vermont, it gets cold in the winter, and uh, so this thing, they kind of theorize, kind of drops off in the winter, or is seen in certain places, and a lot of people, like Katie Elizabeth, who I'll talk about in a little bit, think that it is some sort of amphibian, it is some sort of reptile that hibernates during the winter by either, like, burying itself in the mud like a snapping turtle or a lot of turtles would do, you know, and they they can actually kind of absorb oxygen through their skin. Not a lot of it, but if you're just hibernating enough of it to uh, stay alive until the water warms, because then, she's you know, as the water warms up, champ stightings start popping up exactly where, like, turtles and stuff start coming back to. So it seems to follow that same logic, that same line of thinking of, well, this is what turtles do when they hibernate. This thing seems to almost do very much the same thing. And I really like that idea of this, this kind of unknown reptile that is hibernating and using its all these survival techniques to stick around and pop up when the waters warm up. Over the years, there have been many pictures and videos of the mysterious champ, some better than others. And uh, if you watch that documentary, they do show... You know, they got a little montage of pictures and video. There's a couple of really good ones in there. I don't know how hard it would be to find them just kind of by themselves. But there is one that I find very intriguing. They show it in On the Trail of Champ. It's, it's very short. It's like five seconds long. And it's just, I think these people, I think they're on a kayak. They're on some sort of boat. And there's something behind them. It pops up out of the water. You see what appears to be eye shine. Almost like a purpley shine a little bit on whatever this is that pops out of the water you know it just looks like for i don't want to say it but it looks like a piece of wood that pops up but it has this eye shine on it like it's just the head that comes up and it's there for a little bit and then very arbitrarily just goes right back down and it doesn't come up and then that's all they show of it. it's a very intriguing clip i don't think it's a piece of wood because if it would have popped back up or something you think that they would have had more clip to show i don't know but that one that one i thought was pretty good but yeah, there's no shortage of video and photos of Champ. Um, but, you know, there's also been quite a few groups and individuals that have searched for Champ, uh, such as Champ Search, which is ran by Katie Elizabeth. Katie is one of the foremost experts on Champ and has literally been looking for the animal since she was a kid. Like, um, she didn't, she wasn't born there, but I believe they went up there you know, during summers and stuff as a kid, and she, I believe she had a sighting or she heard about it, and it was just ingrained in her imagination. And uh, now she lives up there on the shores of the lake in Vermont and has been, and has made finding Champ her life goal. And she has a website. It's in the show notes. Uh, go check it out. There are, there are some pretty good pictures on there. Uh, she's got stories, like all the stuff they try to do. She does a lot of stuff with like sonar. She seems to have a lot of luck with, um, like hydrophones listening to stuff under the water and gets she's gotten a lot of video a lot of clips of kind of echolocation clicking noises that don't quite fit the rest of the wildlife in the lake and there's other people that have gotten clicks too 
you know, that are almost whale-like, and there's no whales, it's a freshwater. Whales can't really survive in freshwater because their food and stuff isn't there. But that's kind of what they attribute to, that it's this echolocation, and other animals do it, but these clicks are just a little bit different. And, and they play that in the documentary as well. Like, they play a, a clip from someone who got some clicks really early on, really good audio of them. And then they play, like, the click from, I don't know what, but from something that actually lives in the lake. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. And it does sound different. It has much more of an echoey kind of vibe to it, where the other clicks are very just in-your-face, very, like, I want to I don't know what to say, but I want to say, like, stronger, more pronounced than the other clicks. And uh, that was uh, that was pretty intriguing, pretty interesting as well. It's a pretty good talk. Uh, check it out. Check it out if you get a chance. In recent years, bills and laws have been passed by both local and state governments protecting Champ from pretty much any harm. This will help ensure that people like Katie and many others may someday prove Champ's existence. And that is the story of Champ so far, thus far, if you will. I also found out that they have a Champ Day. And this year, it is August 6th, I believe, a Saturday. And it's very much like a kind of Mothman Festival-like thing with a parade and vendors and all of that. But I think they only do it for one day. And uh, if everything is going well in the world and you know everything is kind of running smoothly, I might attempt to... Uh, go there this year it's about an 11-ish hour drive but like i could leave on like a friday and get there check it out and then come back so i don't know i'll keep everyone posted on that but let's uh, move on to another lake and another monster in another town in another country and that is uh kelona british columbia and the tale of ogopogo Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
the small city of Kelowna, population 142,146, lies pretty much in the middle of Okanagan Lake, a long and deep stretch of water with a mysterious sea beast all its own, a creature we know as Ogopogo. Okanagan Lake, or Lake Okanagan, may not be as large as Lake Champlain, 84 miles long and about 3 miles wide, but it is much deeper, its deepest point being 761 feet with an average overall depth of 249 feet, and like I said before, Lake Champlain's average depth is only 60, it just has a couple of deep points here and there. However, much like Lake Champlain, sightings and stories of the creature have been circulating for hundreds of years. As far back as the early 1700s, the local native tribe, the Sayelks, spoke of a creature they called Nahatik, which means sacred spirit of the waters. They would bring the creature an offering of tobacco or salmon in order to acknowledge all the blessings they got from those very waters. Even though they say the water spirit can take the form of a serpent with antlers, the Sayelks also say that the spirit can turn into the very water itself. The lake creature was known as Nahatik for many years, until about 1929 or so, when a song written by a former reporter named Ronald Kenvin uh, came up and he wrote a little passage about it, and in that passage he, he named Ogopogo. Uh, the little piece of verse is, his mother was an earwig, his father was a whale, a little bit of a head, and hardly any tail, and Ogopogo was his name. I'm not sure where that came from. I know they used to call Rattlesnake Island, when we, we'll get into that in a little bit, Ogopogo Island, and they always say that the creature's kind of the, the his lair, if you will, or his his hangout is a cave underneath that island. And they so I don't know if that is where it came from, but eventually it was brought up in some local meetings by people that have, you know, were living there and all of that. And the name kind of stuck. And then I think in 1956, it was copyrighted by someone in Kelowna. And in fact, a few years ago, that copyright was given back to the Say Elks Nation. So they own the name Ogopogo because it, it is copyrighted and they now have that copyright, which I think is exactly who should have that copyright. The animal has been described as more of a snake-like being, usually seen with a very humps, various humps kind of breaking the water and then a little head up front. Sometimes they say that it does have antlers, people have seen that, or some sort of knob, nodule thing on nodule things on top of its head. Kind of the obligatory sea creature avatar that you see all the time, you know, that uh, humps coming out of the water and then like, you know, kind of a, a ram-like head or a sheep-like head. And that, I mean, that is the description of Ogopogo. As time went on, more and more reports started to come in. The first Caucasian person to uh, report seeing the creature was Suzanne Allison, who lived in Kelowna, and she saw the creature in 1873. In 1890, a steamboat captain named Thomas Shorts saw a finned creature with the head of a ram about 16 feet long. Uh, he tried to turn the boat around to go after it, and of course, by that time, the creature had dove under the water and he couldn't find it, to his dismay. In 1926, the occupants of at least 30 cars reported seeing something strange in the water as they drove along Mission Beach on the lake. Another mass sighting occurred in 1947 when multiple boaters out on the water saw Ogopogo. A Mr. Cray gave an apt description of what he saw that day, and this is a quote from what he said. It had a long, sinuous body, 30 feet in length, consisting of about five undulations, apparently separated from each other by about a two-foot space, in which that part of the undulation would have been under the water. There appeared to have been a forked tail, which only one half 
came above the water. And from time to time, the whole thing submerged and then came up again. In 1978, as many as 20 people stopped their cars on the William R. Bennett Bridge. At least I believe this is the bridge because it's the only bridge that goes across the lake, so process of elimination. Maybe it just wasn't called. They never name it in any of these sightings, so maybe it was like maybe it wasn't called that until recently. I'm not sure, but this bridge links Kelowna, which is on the east side of the lake, to West Kelowna, which is on well the west side of the lake. All of them gathered on the side of the bridge to watch a large serpent-like creature with a small head swim towards said bridge. The head was followed by three humps. Eventually, the creature submerged itself and continued on underwater, leaving a sizable wake behind. One of those people who raced out of their cars to see Ogopogo was Bill Stuklek, who became enamored with the beast and vowed one day to search for it. And in 2000, he would get his chance. Bill and some colleagues had got together and they had restored and modified a 50-foot houseboat in order to search for Ogopogo. Their first expedition, which was uh, in the summer of 2000, and was centered around Rattlesnake Island. And like I said, this is where many say Ogopogo lives. Uh, there is a steep drop-off in depth around that island, and there are many underwater tunnels, a perfect place for a serpentine creature to hide. The team captured some rather interesting sonar images. They captured a large mass on sonar, moving fast, about 15 feet in length. Whatever it was, it was captured at a depth of seven and a half meters. They caught it on sonar for around a minute before it dipped out of range. In 2001, Bill and his team went back to Rattlesnake Island, and uh, they also checked out some sightings uh, three miles north of Kelowna, where more recent sightings had been reported. They got some more interesting sonar hits, but not quite as strong as what they caught the year before. Over the years, Bill and his team, dubbed the Legend Hunters, have been featured on uh, many documentaries and many TV shows. I think he's been on Monster Quest and all of those. And uh, he helps. He still, to this day, continues to help uh, report sightings and uh, keep tabs on Ogopogo. Over the years, the sightings have slowed, but there are still a few reported every year or so. And it seems, just like Champ, that Ogopogo may still be out there. And of course, I didn't get into like what Ogopogo may or may not be, because like I said, it's the same thing from, that it always is, right? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's nothing. It might be wind currents. It might be a log. A lot of people say, I will say that I think I did hear about this on something a while back. Uh, Loch Ness suffers from this as well. And I'm not saying that this is all of the sightings, all of the reports, because a lot of people, including a bunch, it seems that when people see Ogopogo, uh, it seems like it's always seen a lot by multiple people. I mean, there are... I linked a, a great little website called Ogopogo Quest in the show notes, and that's where I got a lot of information about Bill and some of the sightings. And they do have a lot of sightings listed throughout the years. Uh, very simplistic ones, just a couple of them are paragraphs and very in-depth and have some pictures and stuff. But a lot of them are just, you know, such and such saw this here at this date. But there are a lot of sightings of it. But it does seem like a lot of the real substantial ones, at least of Ogopogo, are like mass sightings where multiple people have seen a body in the water. And I think there are a lot of pictures and stuff of what looked like humps. And I, what I wanted to get to was, I think Loch Ness, like I said, suffers from this too because it's very deep and it's in like a valley. And so it gets these very weird kind of undercurrents from where it's at that can make it look like there's a wake of something when there really isn't anything there. It's just the way the wind is hitting the water and also can generate kind of these weird undulations of waves. And I feel like uh, Lake Okanagan has that same kind of thing. It's in a valley. 
It is very deep. I bet you could probably chalk a couple of these uh, sightings up to that, but there are so many where people go, no, there was like things there. There was body parts. I saw, you know, the one guy sees the tail and he's, he saw it well enough to know that it was a forked tail and all of this. He gave a really apt, a really great description of it. And so that could be some of them, but we just don't know. And I, for one, would be very excited to get some sort of identification on any of these. You know, I, I think it actually would be kind of great if it did turn out to be just some giant turtle. That would be kind of fun as well. But one of these days, I think we'll, we'll solve these mysteries, or maybe. And that's what kind of makes them fun. And uh, that's why we have festivals and we celebrate these things and all of that. But that, that is a couple stories of the big guys, uh, Ogopogo and Champ and... Uh, and Lake Okanagan and Lake Champlain. It was it was a it was a fun Saturday sitting down watching some documentaries and looking at some pictures and digging through some websites and finding more about this because I didn't like I said I didn't my head was never really in the whole kind of lake monster uh, part of cryptozoology and I learned a lot today and hopefully uh, you guys have learned a couple of things about these these stories as well but. We are in the middle of the show. We're going to take a break. We're going to play some music. And I'm going to come back, of course, with a couple of uh, local headlines to uh, share with everyone for this episode.
And now on to the news. Our first one comes from CBS Denver, of course, out in Colorado, written by Anika Padilla, or Padilla, I'm sorry. And this is a woman in the window. Stanley Hotel visitor captures unexplained image during ghost tour. Estes Park, Colorado. What do you see in the window? A tourist from Texas who visited the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park last month on vacation says she captured an image on film that she cannot explain. I decided to do one of those ghost tours of the hotel with my friends, Kim Kimberly told CBS4. They tell you to take pictures, so I took a ton. And you can ask my family. I took at least two or three pictures in a row of the same thing. Kimberly says she didn't see anything in the window on the third floor during the tour. She said she took the first photo at 9.03 p.m. on May 27th, and another less than a minute later. There was no one in the window when I looked at those windows, Kimberly said. My friend was taking photos as well, and they didn't see anything either, until I looked back at my photos. Kimberly said she thinks the image looks like a woman or a girl. Some people are saying curtains. The curtains are the exact same in every window. They are all see-through, she stated. And if it was the curtains, what is the dark area that looks like hair and a skin tone color? That can't be a shadow. If it was a mannequin, I would have seen it while taking the photo, and the others would have gotten it on their camera as well, she stated. Besides, I took a photo at 9.03 and 9.04, and it's there in one and not in the other. Kimberly responded to claims from critics that the image looks photoshopped. And that's not the case, she stated. I have no idea how that even works. CBS4 reached out to representatives from the Stanley Hotel and asked them to respond to Kimberly's images and assertions. They offered no explanation. We respectfully declined to comment on the photo, Christina Roosh, the marketing manager for the Stanley Hotel, stated in response to CBS4. The Stanley offers a folklore night tour. This evening tour takes you to the darkened spaces and introduces you to the active phenomena and tells the tales of the spirited folklore surrounding the 100-plus-year-old hotel, the website states, and perfect for those interested in the paranormal tales surrounding the Stanley. Each tour offers you opportunities to explore, ask questions, and perhaps leave a few stories of your own, the website states. Kimberly said the unexplained image definitely made the vacation interesting. I don't know if I could ever stay the night in that room because it is a creepy photo, she told CBS4. And it is, at first, I was like, what we are seeing are curtains and like, like a piece of the flag. There are American flags in front of the, of the, 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 uh, not the photo, <laughs> of the window that this entity is in. Um, if you look at it, there's a couple of little different versions of the photo. It's taken at the front of the hotel. So if you're standing, looking at the hotel, it's on the left side. It's on the third floor. So it's actually above room 217, the infamous, you know, Stephen King Hotel where the boiler blew up and the thing fell through and all of that. So I like I stayed when I stayed there, I stayed on the second floor on the right side. And so I'm kind of I kind of know where it is. I know where we are at here. And if you remember from when we did the Stanley Hotel episode, the the third floor used to be where like the women who worked there would would uh, would stay throughout the season. It was also where like the nursery was where the children would stay. So it does make sense that if you're going to catch a female entity or the entity of a child, you're going to catch it on the third floor. And like I said at first I was like, "Eh, this ain't, eh I don't know about this." But the more I look at it, the more it does make sense when they zoom in. Like I said, there are three American flags in the picture. One is right in front of that window. And it, it doesn't work. Like, it doesn't look like the other, the other curtains at all. You can really make out a dress. You can make out... I even see what might be an arm here. And there are two distinct colored tones of where a head would be. So it doesn't doesn't scream a shadow to me. There's definitely like a brown, you know, tone of hair, and then 
you can see you can almost see eyes you can almost see it is a very intriguing picture it does fit with the stories uh link in the show notes check this one out this is this is a pretty good ghost photo getting a lot of good ghost photos this year we had this one we had those weird feet from waverly hills a couple of weeks ago but i yeah i like this one i always like a good stanley hotel ghost it's one of my favorite places the next one is from the bucks free press uh this came out on the 17th of june this was written by Trufi Sev Trevedi, which I probably mispronounced, I'm sorry. But uh, this is uh, Strange White Light Spotted in Chalfort St. Peter, which I believe this is in England, uh, with a huge crop circle also discovered in a nearby field. A strange white light was spotted in Buck's Village overnight with a huge crop circle discovered by residents in a nearby field this morning. Martin Holt, who lives in Leicester's Close, Chafret St. Peter told the Bucks Free Press he was awoken around 1 a.m. from a bright light coming from outside. He said, I first thought it was a security light or the moon. There was no sound, so I thought I would investigate. I opened one of the windows in my bedroom, looked outside, and I could see the light. It was pure, bright white. It was a great dome of light. That's the only way I can describe it. It was perfectly white like an opaque ball. The dome was about 150 feet wide and around 30 feet tall. Absolutely enormous. Mr. Holt said he continued to listen out for any sounds, but did not hear anything and fell back asleep. In the morning, he went to vote and on his way back, met a neighbor and asked her if she had seen anything. He said she hadn't seen so, so I told her what I saw and she said, Let's go take a look in the field. When the pair got to the nearby field, Mr. Holt said they saw a huge crop circle about 150 feet wide and 50 or 60 feet the other way in the middle of it. He added, all the grass is flat, but the weeds are standing upright and the tops of the trees further down on Mumford's Lane are burnt. It's very strange. I can't say it was a UFO because it wasn't flying but it was definitely an unidentified object or light. And there is a picture on the website of the crop circle. It is more of a crop ring, it kind of looks like. So it's like there's, you know, in the middle, everything is still poking back up and everything. And then around it, there is a ring of laid down grass. Kind of an interesting story. I've never really heard of like, well, I guess I have. I've heard of crop circles with kind of little pin lights going through them that people kind of suspect might make the crop circle. Or like it is a huge dome of light. That is something that you don't hear about a whole lot. And our last story is uh, from uh, theguardian.com out in California. This one written by Cody Nielsen. And the headline is, California's drought has helped solve the mystery of a 1965 plane crash. California's crushing drought may have helped to uncover the remains of a plane crash from 56 years ago. Last week, a local underwater surveying company was testing equipment at Folsom Lake, about 30 miles northeast of Sacramento, when sonar revealed something unexpected. Upon further inspection, workers with C4 systems found the mystery object was an airplane in one of the lake's deepest points. We could see the fuselage there, here. We could see uh, the right wing. We could see the tail. Josh Tamblin, the company's CEO, told KRON4TV. The plane C4 technicians found appeared to resemble that of one that was lost, but their image didn't quite capture an aircraft number or a look inside the cabin, the TV station reports. While it's unclear exactly what plane was found, many local news outlets suspect it's a Piper Comanche 250 that crashed into the water near Folsom Dam on New Year's Day in 1965 after a mid-air collision. So far, only the body of the plane's pilot has been recovered, CBS Sacramento reports. The plane and its three passengers have long been missing. This potential discovery of the decades-old wreck was made possible by historically low water levels in Folsom Lake, which this year received just a pittance of the snowpack that typically flows from the Sierra Nevadas. Previous efforts to locate the missing plane have been unsuccessful. 
During California's last drought in 2014, dive teams and a couple with a sonar boat tried taking advantage of the historically low water levels on Folsom Lake to look for the wreckage. However, the low lake levels made the water extra silty, complicating the search local TV reported at the time. They found nothing from the crash. It may turn out that this year's inadvertent discovery was more fruitful. Local sheriff's office are expected to meet with seafloor workers next week to discuss options for retrieving what they found. Frank Wilcox, whose brother was on board, looked for the plane and his brother's body until he died two years ago, according to CBS Sacramento. For the victim's surviving family members, finding the plane may offer some closure on the tragedy. I think it's amazing that after all this time, Seafloor's Tyler Atkinson told KRN4, there's been a lot of research and a lot of effort put into finding this for the family and also to retrieve it, but no one has been down there. Across California, the climate crisis has caused such severe dryness this year that Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a drought emergency in 41 of the state's 58 counties, including the three counties that encompass Folsom Lake, Pacer, El Dorado, and Sacramento. Earlier this year, Folsom's lake bed was dry, docks offering nothing but parched ground for boaters. The lake, which is actually a reservoir on the American River, is just 35% of its storage capacity and holds less than half of its 15-year average, according to the Bureau of Reclamation. The desert-like scene today on Folsom's Lake shouldn't come as a surprise, though. The U.S. Drought Monitor lists the area around the lake as being in an extreme or exceptional drought, the Monitor's two driest conditions. And that has been this uh, episode's edition of our local headlines. And uh, they're all in the show notes. You can all check them out. You can read them. Uh, no picture of the plane here. I guess maybe they don't have a picture of it. Uh, there is a picture of the very dry lake. Literally a picture of like a jeep driving through what apparently is very shallow water onto some land that has been exposed. But yeah, so that is what we have going on out there right now. But that is it. That has been the local headlines, like I said. And now I have just one little small town secret to share coming up next. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And this is a story from Reddit from user Saber. 1918 uh they gave me permission to use this like a long time ago but i kind of didn't check reddit for a while and so i just kind of had this one laying around i have to scrounge some more together i've got a few interviews i think coming up for the kind of later half of this season and we'll get some more small town secrets and stuff going but right now just this one little story which i which i really dug and that's why i wanted to use it so this is what saber has to say Back in 2007-2008, when I was a teenager, there stood an old abandoned house by the edge of a park. My friends and I had passed this house many times and not really given it much thought until the day we decided to have a closer look. The house was pretty big and it had three floors. All the windows were missing and it looked like it had been on fire once or twice. It had a stone wall surrounding the property which we had no difficulty in climbing. 
Navigating through the overgrown garden on the other side of the wall, we eventually reached the front door of the house. There was a small gap in the boards that covered the door so we could crawl inside. And once inside, we had to use the light on our phones to see, but we found the downstairs to be completely empty. No furniture, nothing. After exploring the downstairs and the basement area of the house and finding nothing interesting, we headed for the stairs. Reaching the top, we were faced with four doors, each locked with, with not one, not two, but three sliding bolt locks on the outside of each door. That's weird. Why would these doors need to be locked so securely from the outside, we thought, as we started unlocking one of the doors. Inside the room, there was an old metal bed which looked like something out of an old hospital, an armchair, and a wardrobe. The other three rooms contained a similar setup. After exploring all four rooms, we wanted to check out the top floor, but the stairs had been destroyed by a fire at some point. The only way up was through a hole in the ceiling in one of the four rooms. We pulled over a wardrobe and I stood on it to see what was in the floor above. The floor looked unsafe and it was even darker up there, so I didn't climb all the way up, just shone my torch around from where I was. That's when I found an old metal club with the wrist strap still attached. It was heavily dented and had obviously been well used. After showing my friend what I had found, I left it up there and climbed back down. Because it was so dark inside, we hadn't noticed the sun had set and it was almost pitch black outside. We sat opposite the front door and each began rolling the cigarette discussing what we had found when something made us look at one of the windows. And to this day, I still struggle to find the words to describe what I saw. I saw a figure standing in the window of one of the bedrooms. It was not transparent like the traditional ghost nor was it solid. It was almost like it was made out of a liquid or smoke. Although it was so dark in the room, the figure needed to be illuminated as if giving off its own light. Despite its hazy appearance, I could make out that it was wearing a white doctor's coat with a name tag on the left breast pocket. The face was too distorted to make out any features, but I could see two large black eyes staring back at me. I sat there completely frozen to the spot, trying to comprehend what I was looking at. It could have been seconds, but it felt like hours. Suddenly, I regained control of myself, and without saying a single word, I jumped up and sprinted for the wall. As I was running, I was wondering to myself whether I had really seen it or not. At this point, my friend, who was a faster runner than me, overtook me and continued running up the road. Eventually, I caught up with him and asked him why he had been running. What he said next has haunted me ever since. Uh, in quotation marks, I saw a doctor in the window. And I really dug that story. Like, just having like the urban exploration of it, part of it, just going in there and seeing some sort of what did appear to be like a weird kind of doctor setup would have been enough. But then just the whole, the whole ghost sighting and they both saw it and they both ran away from it for the same reason. The same reason? What? The same reason. Uh, it was a really great story. Really dug it. And that's why I wanted to share it on the show. Short and sweet. But that has been this episode's edition of uh, Your Small Town Secrets. And that is a wrap on episode 6.06. .06. Of course, if you have a story to share... I would love to hear it. I would love to get it on the show. The best way to get it to me is to go to stscast.com, scroll down to the bottom of the main page there, and there is an email form that you can fill out, and you can send me your story, your article uh, of your small town secret, your small town legend, your Bigfoot sighting, your UFO sighting, your ghost story, uh, a true crime, whatever it may be. Uh, we can get it on the show while you're there. Check out everything else on the site. We have show notes for every episode, links to the sources that I use, uh, some pictures. All of that is on there. You can also find ways to support the show 
such as uh, links to the Patreon, links to merch. Grab yourself a t-shirt, grab a coffee mug, uh, grab a sticker. All that stuff is there. You can also find me on social media. Uh, Twitter and Facebook are both at STScast, and Instagram is at STScast.gram. So you can reach out to me on there if you have a story or if you just want to say what's up or whatnot. That is where I can be found on social media. I want to thank everyone for listening and continuing to listen. It means the world to me. And I haven't said this in a while, but if you guys get a chance, please leave a five-star rating or a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. really helps the show grow and get noticed by more and more people. I noticed uh, last week that it has broken, we've broken 50 ratings on iTunes. And I think when you do that, or at least that used to be the case, although they changed it, you get a little bump little bump in the iTunes algorithm once you break 50 ratings. So I have noticed a little bit of a jump because of that, so that's been great. So just, you know, leave a rating review if you can, and uh, tell a friend. Like I say it, I say it all the time. If everyone that listens to the show can get one more person to listen to the show, then we double the audience automatically. And uh, that's it. That's all I've got. If you are on Patreon, there is more uh, Lake Monster goodness to be had as we talk about uh, the terrifying, the uh, scary, the uh, uh, ridiculous, quite frankly, Lake Alkali Monster in Nebraska. That's right, Nebraska, where just the best lake monsters can be found. That's that's the story we're going to get into on the Backroads episode on the Patreon. So that's what you guys had to look forward to. Uh, until next week, remember... Every town has a secret. What is yours?